Welcome to Then and Now, brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We are dedicated to studying change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every week, we interview thought leaders, historians, researchers, and policymakers about what happened then and what that means for us now. Welcome to Then and Now, sponsored by the Luskin Center for History and Policy at UCLA. I'm David Myers. I teach in the UCLA Department of History and direct the Luskin Center, whose goal is to bring the past into conversation with the present, and in doing so, to understand how we got where we are so that we can imagine alternative and better futures. We are at a fragile moment in the history of the United States today. It is year four of the Trump presidency which has brought with it an unprecedented assault on liberal democratic ideals, institutions of governance, and norms of decency. The COVID-19 crisis has created an emergency situation that allows for extraordinary state intervention. And the government's response to protests calling for racial justice after the murders of George Floyd and Rayshard Brooks have taken on an ominous tone, with heavily armed federal troops arresting demonstrators on the streets of America's cities. In recent years, a number of scholars have called into question the long-term stability of American democracy. Some have argued that the United States is rapidly descending into an authoritarian vortex. For example, the author Masha Gessen, in her new book, Surviving Autocracy, sees Donald Trump as the definitive representative of of repressive state authority. She draws from the Nazi legal theorist Carl Schmitt, who famously theorized that it is the ability to invoke emergency law in the state of exception that defines the modern state. The true face of the repressive modern state, she suggests, has now been fully unveiled in the United States. Is this where we're at? To help us answer that question, we have two keen observers, Samuel Moyne and Vera Edelman, to offer perspectives from their respective vantage points. Sam Moyne is the Henry Luce Professor of Jurisprudence and Professor of History at Yale University. He has written widely on European history and the history of human rights and is a prolific commentator in a wide range of venues. Our second guest is Vera Edelman, who is a staff attorney at the American Civil Liberties Union's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project where she works on litigation and advocacy to protect freedom of expression and privacy rights in the digital age. Welcome to you both, Sam and Vera. Thank you. Thank you. So let's begin by talking a bit about history before we move to the present day. Uh, Sam, you wrote a piece in the New York Review of Books um, in May of this year, Warning Against Historical Analogies. Uh, and really prompted by the assertion that the Trump era was fascistic. So what's wrong with historical analogies in general? And can you walk us through your argument? Sure. So uh, there are a lot of bad things that happen in the past, some good. Uh, and there are definitely a lot of bad things happening in the present, maybe some good. Uh, and a- as historians, we're, we're interacting with a public that, uh, is is thirsty for understanding our moment, um, and you know we could we could go about the relation between past and present. Let's say in one of two ways, or even three. One is to 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 kind of make comparisons 
to compare Donald Trump to Adolf Hitler or Benito Mussolini uh, or compare the Trump era to the rise of Nazism or Italian fascism. We could also make influence claims um, that these old models are, are still alive and being drawn upon by the actors we're talking about. Um, and, you know, I, I actually haven't ever denied that it's, it's, it's useful to make an, a historical comparisons. Um, I just think that we've been very hasty with some of them. Um, and, uh, you know, the main point really of the article you referenced was, first of all, that anytime as historians we make a comparison, we always have to make contrast to just to be honest with with what we know and 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 understanding the not just the similarities but the differences with our present and appreciating what's new. Um, I also questioned um, how useful it is, even if it's it's accurate intellectually, to brand our fellow citizens or our president a fascist uh, or fascists. Um, so I can get into the details, but I mean, I, I do think that by and large, we're, we're in a situation in which um, we, we don't very well understand our, our, this presidency, these four years in American history, by making comparisons to the worst chapters of European history. Mm-hmm. I can say why, um, mm-hmm. but, but really I was, I was trying to make a, a background point about the politics of history and what's, what's at stake when we make comparisons. Um, that was the point of my article and it got sucked into a lot of, you know, other things I hadn't meant to comment on, but I'm happy to. So, now. so tell us why, why is it not appropriate? Um, is it that we do not have the requisite perspective on the current moment to be able to compare it? We don't have a sharp enough oh, view not at of all. the fact. No, no, we always are. You know, in the middle of the present, and we have to think. Um, we can't wait. You know, till fascism has arisen to 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 make comparison. I mean, it's never. You know, it and it'll be even. You know, distorted in different ways in the future. Um, so, I, no, it's not at all that we don't have information. Actually, I think we have a lot of information. Um, so, you know, the question is, um, first, wh- what is the comparison? Is it um, a comparison about um, Amer- the American government right now or the presidency in particular? Is it about the leader involved, Donald Trump, um, and likening hi- him not to Hitler as someone in charge of, the, of, a, of a Nazi regime, but as ideologically a Nazi? Um, or characterologically a Nazi, or are we talking about his followers? Because all of these are very, in a way, different things, and they come together in different ways. I mean, I I have been very opposed from 2017 or even before 2016 to the the easy claim that we're in January 1933, which somehow. Um, you know, d- didn't happen in January 2017, and yet it's been an easy crutch as time go- goes on for 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 um, you know every, every outrageous transgression that's happened. And you know, again, I'm not saying things aren't bad when I say they're not fascist. That it would be a, a sad thing if if 
anything bad was fascist or vice versa. So, I mean, just to be, you know, a, a little brief about it, you know, start out with what was going on. If we're talking about Hitler rather than Mussolini or some other fascist um, event, Donald Trump comes to, sorry, uh, Adolf Hitler comes to power with a two million man private army and within really weeks um, uh, has, has, um, had had an opportunity to seize power and within months has opened concentration camps, not for people outside Germany wanting in, but his political enemies, especially communists in Germany, and eventually sets up a, an internment regime, you know, from spring 1933 that has hundreds of thousands of, 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 of class and race enemies in it. Nothing like that has happened. Uh, you know, a, a in Charlottesville, there were a couple of hundred people from 13 states. Uh, in Portland, there was something incredibly frightening for, for, for people who've lived in America in our lifetime. Um, but it, it's really not, not fair to compare it. But my main, my main you know, response to these comparisons is that we're missing that the dynamic shows how weak Trump is relative to these prior strongmen. He's checked in part through anti-fascist organizing, but lots of other forces. When he cleared the park in Washington, you had the, the biggest act of insubordination since Douglas MacArthur in Korea when the, the General Mark Milley said he was sorry to have been involved and when the defense secretary said he wouldn't follow orders that deployed the military. We can t get into what happened in Portland, but we built a very powerful presidency with, you know, lo laws that can be interpreted in ways that allow what happened. I mean, that's frightening, and we should have advocates who are alarmist and fight it, like people in the ACLU. But we can't help but note that it was unpopular enough that the decision to deploy those folks in Portland was reversed. Nothing of, of what I've said has a remote parallel in the history of Nazi Germany. Think about the leaders of the Wehrmacht through long into World War II when they're fighting an exterminatory war, absolute compliance. The, the paramilitary forces that Adolf Hitler controlled or even Mussolini and the you know tens of thousands of men, black shirts marching on Rome, um, really you know um, ha, don't bear comparison to wh what Trump has managed to do so far. And I think it's really critical, not for the sake of historical accuracy, but for understanding our political situation. Because again, we built this presidency. He came from somewhere. 60 million people voted for him as a result of prior policies. And if we don't face our situation correctly, we can vote Trump out, which again, never happened to any of these fascist leaders. But the underlying dynamics are still there. Okay. So where what are those underlying dynamics that require our analysis and and uh, some measure of uh, uh, of attending to. Now here, I think you can get into some useful analogies because obviously Italian fascism 
arose before the Great Depression, but most of European evil arose after it. Um, and European militarism, especially German militarism, had its own, you know, long prehistory, um, and 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 European, you know, um, parallels. I I myself think that we should we should look hard at how we should understand the 2016 elections. What happened? Well, you had someone who astoundingly. Um, took control of one of America's historic political parties um, and and was an outsider who w- won against insiders. Something, you know, ha- was happening amongst the Democrats, which it's just that the challenger on that side wasn't as successful. And then amazingly, in the election, Trump won in, in our own, you know, so-called democratic system against the Hillary Clinton, a, a mainstream candidate. I, I think there, you know, we can't get into a debate of, of of exactly what the reasons were, but those dynamics suggest that there are lots of people who are are trying to outflank the the elites who have run the parties, especially since they've agreed about so much, agreed on empowering the presidency agreed on fighting wars, agreed on relatively libertarian policies that minimize the state uh, and don't engage in, in the kind of, you know, goods provision and services provision that, you know, would make me angry if I didn't have a good job to provide them for myself. Um, and so I think we have to go back to see 2016 as a referendum on the defects of American governance. And the trouble is that our response to Trump as a fascist really scapegoats him for our mistakes. Uh, and Trump washes a huge number of policy mistakes that led to his coming. And if we indulge in alarmism to the point of letting everyone else off the hook except him or his party, um, and not looking hard at what we did to make him since Trump is us, then we'll have missed a big opportunity and, and we're just writing ourselves uh, a, a, a prescription for another version, maybe a more successful one down the road. Yeah, so I want to just pick up on one of these points because one of the interesting things you say in that uh, May 2020 piece is that um, – there's a tendency to exceptionalize, or as you say, abnormalize Trump that uh, leads us to neglect, as you just pointed out, failed policies. But I think, as you point out there, even more profoundly, deep structures of oppression in the United States. And that seems like a really valid point to make as we try and contextualize Trump. He is perhaps the ugly face, but of something that you referred to in just a minute ago as the so-called democratic system of the United States. So maybe... right. Try to situate for us Trump within that uh, deep system, Great. deep structure. Absolutely. I mean, um, so you know, w- w- we began this talking about these European um, comparisons, um, and uh, th- the trouble there is that the 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 impression that people get is that um, Trump is some alien from some some other national experience. Um, and of course, that's false. Um, and you know, we we really don't need to look at European fascism or totalitarianism um, 
to, to get at, at the sense of how oppressive um, American history has been for many people. Now, of course, we could claim that there was an American version of fascism. Um, and, and many African-American intellectuals reflecting on what white supremacy has been like for its victims have said what was unique about fascism in Europe is that white supremacy, ra racial terror, just was visited on white people, albeit Jews and others, um, for the first time, and inside Europe rather than globally, the way European empires um, had operated before. I'm not sure that that's very useful to 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 look at 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 you know there may have been some American fascists or people we can reasonably describe that way, but clearly you had a much bigger buy-in for most of American history around white supremacy. Um, and, you know, it never went away. But I would even um, stress that if we're looking for the, the, tr the origins of Trumpism, of course, we should look to those sources, um, the white nationalism of Andrew Jackson, or even Franklin Roosevelt, who was a white working man's candidate even though he was a Democrat. But we should also, I think, look at the mainstream, the non-racist sources. Um, as I've been stressing, Trump is a, 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 a white supremacist response to mainstream policies and, I think, mistakes. And so even looking at the nefarious parts of American history um, could, could serve to kind of let ourselves off the hook. Um, if he's a symptom, then he's definitely a symptom of the worst in American history, but also the best and the brightest, as we used to call them. You know, the 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 mainstream, you know, politicians in both parties who've created the dynamics out of which he comes. Right. So I'm interested here, uh, just briefly, what you think some of those policy mistakes are, because they're deep structures of racism, right. and then they're policy mistakes. And I would add just a third piece when trying to really uh, pull off the face of uh, that ugly system of which Trump is only the latest representative, which is a global perspective. Because if we think about uh, the uh, voters uh, who supported Donald Trump um, and the sense of uh, frustration and rage they felt against an elitist system, it's hard not to connect that to the frustration and rage uh, experienced um, in populist movements really across the world. Um, so there's a, a global dimension that de-exceptionalizes the American experience as well. That's good. So all of this is to say, what policy mistakes do you, are you actually talking about and how global should our perspective be when we, uh, having moved away from the European, the, the direct comparison to, uh, to Hitler, now let's think of... Right. The global context again. Absolutely. So, I mean, it may be that, you know, we should compare not across time, but across space. And if we do that, we begin to talk less about, um, I think, implausibly Mussolini or Hitler and more about someone like Viktor Orban or others. And I, I, I'll just say th those comparisons do have more plausibility for me precisely because, you know, we've talked about um, a politician like Orban as a post-fascist authoritarianism who's, let's say, not making the same mistakes, not committing the same crimes, and ab above all, working within a kind of more, more legal framework. Um, 
and and yet I also think that some of those comparisons are off. Um, the the policies I would finger. I mean, first of all, we always have to start with the racialized nature of American governance, always, um, and that's true of um, the subordination of African Americans, you know, forever. Um, the border control. Um, I mean, you're. I'm, I, I defer to um, Vera, but. Um, if we get into a serious comparison of Obama's immigration regime and Trump's, there are, are big differences, but also some important similarities. And since at least the late 19th century, America has had a very racialized and punitive immigration system um, that has been white supremacist in in function and often, in, you know, facially. Um, but then I would go on to Let's other things. Clear, I agree with you. Right. I, I, that. Sorry I, to interrupt I, and interrupt no, no. your flow, but very no, no, much absolutely. Like um, I would also say that there that Trump's voters, some of them are also victims. They're the sad thing is, you know, these 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 developments are pitting victim groups against one another. That's what scapegoating is about. Um, it, 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 including in German history. Uh, and and other histories, I would say we we should definitely attend to the you know those who've been victimized worse, African Americans and others, but also consider you know class grievances, and I think that played a big role. Um, so you know the the policies I have in mind that I prioritize, aside from white supremacy, which you know affects everything, um, including class, it would be endless war and economic neoliberalism. So, you know, tr Donald Trump did not set up the Department of Homeland Security, which then goes on to play a major role in Portland and other places. And, you know, my real worry about the fascism and totalitarianism meme is that um, it's, it's like a revival of Cold War liberalism, where we keep, you know, the extremes at bay for the sake of, you know, protecting you know, uh, opposing a kind of progressive social justice as if all of its forms were communist. Um, that was like the essence of American political beliefs for, you know, our, 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 in our youth and even since. Um, and I, I think a lot of people of different races are suffering from economic policies that have benefited you know, a very few people and stagnated and hurt others who mm. are rightly angry and are rightly attacking the leadership of both parties. Um, and so those are the policies I would single out. Excellent. Um, we'll return to you in just a second, but Vera, I want to allow you the opportunity to jump in on, I think it was the Obama-Trump um, uh, juxtaposition. Oh, yes. And I think that I, so first I should be clear that I'm speaking here in my personal capacity and not my professional capacity, though obviously informed by my identity as a lawyer and the reality that I'm a lawyer for the ACLU. I just wanted to echo the fact that I think a lot of what you all are talking about both has to do with the precision of terms. And I recognize that we're talking about terms in their precise historical sense, but I think sometimes people mean fascist, people mean authoritarianism in a more general way, and sometimes they do that intentionally to talk about the extreme nature of what's going on. That said, I don't mean to be alarmist, and I very much agree that there are serious differences. I just find 
looking at history and recognizing that other human beings have thought about things before and have reacted to them before, comforting, guiding, and given where we've ended up, also a source of optimism. But I think it's also very true that there's a lot of um, history and a lot of recent history in the United States that shows that what's going on now is not all that unusual and is actually, I think, as Sam was very correctly saying, a reflection of our institutions rather than any particular individuals. I think so much about the way that our system of government is set up enables government abuse. That is why I'm a civil libertarian, but I also believe in a lot of the pieces of our system of government to correct each other, which is why I'm still a practicing lawyer. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, thank you. Um, I want to just uh, wrap up with Sam, uh, um, and then we'll turn more fully to to you and your sense of uh, the state of play today. Um, but Sam, what do you think it is? Uh, what's the task of the historian or, say, the political scientist? I'm thinking of uh, a predecessor of yours at Yale, Juan Linz, um, who established a kind of warning system for the decline of democracy. Political scientists and historians are writing books, uh, calling attention to the fragile state of democracy the world over, uh, establishing criteria by which we can establish an early warning system and expressing grave concern. Part of what you're saying is to counsel us as against being alarmist, at least in the sense of uh, uh, imagining ourselves um, back in, uh, in, in Germany in January, January 1933. Um, but part of what you're also pointing to is the deep structure of oppression and racism. So what's our job um, at this particular moment? What should the uh, the comparison, the analogizing and the contrasts yield by way of public knowledge? What do we need now to know about history in order to understand the Trump moment? I think it's a great question. I don't think there's a single answer. Um, I, you know, I, I fully agree with Vera that um, it, it, it is reasonable, especially if it's useful, to make bad analogies or exploit one side of a comparison and dispense with contrast. Uh, and I think historians can help in that regard because um, historians aren't just scholars. They're citizens and they're oriented to movements. Um, but they're also scholars. And I do think our responsibility is to be responsible um, with what we know um, and, and let's say not blindly serve the discourse or the movements, even when we're donating to them as I do with the ACLU or affiliating with them. And, you know, we, we can get caught up in things. I mean, the, the analogy at its most brutal would suggest that the only way to beat Donald Trump, as it was for Mussolini and Hitler, was at the price of millions and millions of lives, when in fact we're facing something, you know, ordinary. Maybe there'll be some, you know, kind of interesting wrinkles to it, a contested election in which what's at stake is convincing our fellow citizens who I don't want to kill and whom I don't want to brand as fascists, principally because I think it's hard to convince people that you've dismissed it as fascists when they're also victims. Um, and so, you know, part of the issue is the responsibility of scholars to what we've learned and what we know. 
but there's also like a different mode of of engaging in in citizenship. I, you know, I'm a huge fan of of activism and resistance when called for, but if they're not connected to forging a, a durable majority with and amongst my fellow citizens, then in the long run, they will fail. Uh, and if they're not connected to, you know, a, 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 a devising policies that will bring us into a better future, then, you know, that they're, they're short-sighted. So I, that, that's as much a, a citizenship, you know, perspective as a scholarly one, but, you know, in my case, they're connected. And I think many people, you know, c- can inhabit one or the other or interpret their role in, in different ways. Is that a progressive populism? I, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I'm nervous about the concept of populism because like, you know, totalitarianism, it homogenizes very different things. Um, Bernie Sanders is, was not dangerous in the way that Donald Trump is. Uh, he wanted very different things and he was a spokesman for a transracial majority. But even if you didn't support him, you know, the idea that you know, democracy is not about movements, about, about you know, public gatherings, about, um, you know, confronting predatory elites. I mean, that's what democracy is supposed to be about. And, you know, if that's what populism is, then it's a good thing as long as it leads to results that, you know, intensify and broaden democracy. Um, I want to ask just a final question um, that uh, moves away from progressive populism and back to the sort of conspiratorial world that we've uh, been talking about and trying to escape. Um, Because you dismissed uh, comparisons between Attorney General Bill Barr and and, uh, and, and Nazi legal theorist Carl Schmitt, um, which a number of people have made, um, uh, really focusing on the Schmittian principle of the state of exception, the capacity to invoke emergency law. Um, and I wonder if you could briefly tell us why you reject the comparison and how you understand Barr um, and his uh, seeming uh, ability and willingness to trample long-established, deeply ingrained uh, democratic procedures. So, you know, I'm, I, we'd have to get into, like, detail of the various things he's done. But, you know, you could start your analysis by saying, Again, he's a very dangerous guy who I oppose. I mean, is he is he a fascist or Nazi? Well, there I think it's 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 not really adequate to the facts as we know them. Um, he he is someone who's part of a very long term agenda which interprets the Constitution a certain way um, in favor of a, a strong and unitary executive. Uh, and he thinks that after Richard Nixon, uh, the presidency was weakened and he's part of a, a kind of large group of people who have wanted to restore it. And it's in the name of a conservative, um, you know, religious moral vision of, you know, the way America ought to be. And um, I don't see that as much like what Carl Schmidt argued for or did, not least since um, he's not making claims that we should suspend the law. He's interpreting the law in ways that um, are, you know, debatable, wrong, but they're um, 
they they reflect his understanding of what the rule of law requires and or allows and you know again he's a symptom of the fact that we've created an incredibly powerful presidency we never reined it in during the cold war or after and again feel free to scapegoat him but you'll you'll have the presidency uh still there and you'll have liberals including people who served obama and you know did a lot of i think things that are incredibly unholy um back in power to do them again so the gist is to say that bill Barr did not invent the unitary executive and all of the enormous power that accrues to it um that's a longer term project um, and therefore, either the reality or the theory of it, which you know he's spoken yeah. about in many times. And then we'd have to get into detail about well, what did he do when he got Robert Mueller's report? What does he think happened in the predication of the investigation that you know led to you know most of the national psychodrama around the Russia Gate? You know, and and we can get into those details, but he's he's more a boring political operative to me and not a Nazi. It just distracts us from um, what he's actually done and the details um, on the basis of which he's claimed to proceed. He's not like interesting enough to be compared to Carl Schmidt, in my view. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, well, there's a big gap between being a Nazi legal theorist and just a boring lawyer. I think my view is far somewhere okay, between. Okay. Fair enough. All right, let's turn uh, to Vera. Um, and I'd love to just get your perspective as a committed civil libertarian and experienced lawyer. How do you see the state of affairs in the United States of America today from your perspective, especially when we countenance the specter of federal troops arresting demonstrators on the streets of Portland, Oregon? How does it look to you? I, I, to be honest, I don't see it all that differently than Sam does. I think that a lot of what he was saying about how these are just manifestations of the way that our system is built, these are more expansive uses than we've seen before, but largely of systems that were already in place. I think that's absolutely accurate. And I would invite people who currently are outraged and frightened and horrified by what the Trump administration is doing to think through some of the things that the Obama and Bush administrations did and to consider when we're outside of a Trump administration how similar abuses by presidents they may otherwise support are also serious problems. I think that's actually one way in which analogies can really serve us. If we think it's problematic that this administration has separated families, maybe we should think about the practice of um, protective services generally taking away children from black and brown parents. If we think that it's problematic that the federal troops in Portland are arresting people without identifying themselves, without probable cause, perhaps we should think about the fact that that actually happens at the state and local level as well. That's not to say those things aren't problems. They are real problems. But that's why we should be worried about them across Mm -hmm. the board. I see. So um, in that, uh, from that perspective, um, Bill Barr's um, actions don't concern you um, in a kind of exceptional way as uh, without precedent in American history. Yeah? I think that's right. I mean, I, I should be clear that they concern me a lot. I think they are very bad. We are challenging them. I think they deserve to be challenged. They are unconstitutional. 
Um, that said, I just think that it's important to recognize that they're not unique. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's try and drill down a little bit and get a sense of what is going on in the present moment that is different. So one thing we have is the COVID crisis um, and at least the invitation to uh, to introduce emergency regulations um, with uh, with greater facility um, uh, justified by the pandemic. Um, and then um, this, the response to protests against racial injustice. Um, what what is new here? What what has um, called your attention to uh, to the situation in ways that you know might not have been the case previously? I think a couple of different. I mean, I think the combination of these factors is probably new. I don't know that we've been in a global pandemic when there is a national uprising against police brutality before. Um, I do think that you're right that there has been some, um, in some ways, unprecedented use of looking to emergency declarations based in public health problems um, to restrict civil liberties more broadly than we've seen before. For example, there was a trend of nightly curfews that were imposed in cities across the country in response, really, from my perspective, to the police brutality protests, but um, clothed in the language of public health justifications. Those, thankfully, are no longer on the books in most places anymore. But I do think there's an uncomfortable interaction right now between interests that the government could legitimately invoke to restrict our rights and its use of those pretextually to actually get at voices that it doesn't want to hear and is afraid of. Mm -hmm. So just to um, reiterate the point, from your perspective, this administration is not breaching legal boundaries in unprecedented ways, in ways that lead you to conclude we're on the brink of or already immersed in an authoritarian era. I guess to clarify, I think that our president is one who is an authoritarian and who wishes that he could do things that were proper in an authoritarian system. I think the reality is that for the most part, the rest of our governmental system, including in particular courts, has prevented him from truly breaching legal boundaries in unprecedented ways. I think he's tried. I think there are some instances in which he has succeeded, but I think that thankfully we have the constitution to act as a curb to most of that. And for the most part, we have courts that are still willing to enforce those limitations. Yeah, so maybe we can speak about that. So just as we have a certain degree of continuity in terms of unfair or discriminatory practices, as you've noted, such that the Trump administration's actions are not unique or unprecedented. So too, we have a certain degree of continuity in terms of the functioning of the legal system in this country. And could you give us your report card on how it's going? How is the legal system holding up? Um, and I should note that we spoke um some episodes ago with your colleague, David Cole, um, the national legal director of the ACLU, who was part of the team that successfully argued on behalf of uh, LGBTQ rights in the historic Supreme Court decision uh, in, I think it was June. Um, so do you think, from your perspective, you and your colleagues can get a fair hearing in the legal system, the American legal system at the present moment? Well, I think one question is what we mean by fair. 
I think that there are certainly some doctrines that exist that make fair from what I would wish it meant um, near impossible, like qualified immunity and deliberate indifference that just basically impose nearly impossible standards on individuals who are trying to protect their civil rights and civil liberties. But setting that aside, if what you mean is whether we think we can get a fair application of the precedents as they exist, um, I think for the most part, I believe that we can. But I say that as someone who works largely on First and Fourth Amendment questions, meaning the right to free speech and the right to be free from government surveillance, excessive force, et cetera. And for the most part, I think those issues don't necessarily cut on political lines. And I think that inures to the benefit of me and the rest of my team. Um, and as I said before, perhaps it's also just blind optimism, but you know, I am still someone who tries to appear before judges and hopes that they will make the right decisions. So I have to believe mm -hmm. that we'll get something close to a fair hearing. And what 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 do your issues hinge on, if not that kind of um, coarse political calculus, your First and Fourth Amendment issues? Why are they different? Well, I mean, I think one is that they cut across political lines in some ways. So I think that people who are true civil libertarians and believe in freedom from government um, are more willing, whether they're conservative or liberal, to be troubled by government restrictions on speech. I think those and government restrictions on um, government attempts to engage in broader surveillance or to search people in ways that are unjustified. I think that hits on some intuitions that are not necessarily exclusively progressive or liberal um, or conservative. And so I think that can be helpful. I don't think that knowing, for example, what president appointed a particular judge necessarily tells us what the outcome will be in a speech or search case. Right. And as David Cole reminded us, you can frame arguments um, uh, geared to the sensibilities of particular just justices or judges um, across uh, uh, political boundary lines. Uh, he told us about framing um, his argument in the LGBTQ rights case in textualist terms um, in order to appeal to a particular justice uh, on the Supreme Court who ended up supporting uh, uh, the ACLU side in the case. Certainly. So I guess... Yeah. And I think a similar thing can show up with the Fourth Amendment if we talk about property rather than a reasonable expectation of privacy, for example. So tell us um, about, you know, how we should think of the the balance of power between the federal level and states, um, because I often wonder whether we're in you know, a new period um, in the history of federalism. Um, uh, whereby um, so much hope for the promotion and upholding of civil rights uh, now adheres in the states, um, quite in contrast to an earlier era where federalism meant uh, supporting states uh, who were committed to denying uh, uh, civil rights. Um, from your perspective as a lawyer, is there hope um, in hearing at the local and state levels in terms of upholding uh, civil rights in ways that say at least the executive branch um, at the federal level is less committed to doing? 
I think there's always hope in thinking through the complexity of our system and the various levers of change that are available. I don't think that there's anything inherently better or worse for the most part about the federal, state, or local level, except maybe the local level is by far the most responsive to constituents, um, and perhaps the existence of agencies like DHS that are particularly repressive. Um, but I think in many ways, the problems we're talking about, the institutional problems are true across government levels, but there also are attempts at democracy at all of those levels. So I think if there's a particular level of government that in a particular moment, like right now, the state level, as you're saying, is more responsive to calls for change and appears to actually be more interested, at least in some states, in protecting people's rights, I think that's a good thing and one that should be taken advantage of. At the same time, I, you know, I'm on a case right now where um, in the South that is focused on protesters' rights. And I will say that our clients there were asking for us to call for some federal enforcement because they were worried about the ways in which their local and state authorities would police them. Um, so I think that even now, there, all of the there's there are more devils in the details than perhaps any one story can show. And one turn to the Justice Department um, in its current incarnation, in the hopes that it would be able to step in and play such a role. I think more rarely than in the past. Okay. So, <laughs> what keeps you awake at night, Vera? What, what really um, you know? challenges, concerns, terrifies you about the current moment? And what do you see unfolding over the next spell? I think a lot of the things that keep me up at night also are things that I can eventually feel hopeful about. I think that the problems that the, you know, the national uprising and protests around the country are highlighting are real and they're terrifying. And I, as a white woman, have not experienced them in my personal life but I, it is horrifying to me that they are real. That said, I think it's incredibly beautiful and inspiring that people are out in the street. And in some places, government actors are actually open to making changes. In other places, we're using the courts to force those changes. Um, I guess the thing that would really keep me up at night is the substance of what we're talking about. If we were to become a fully authoritarian or fascist country where those other checks and balances did not exist, I don't think we're there. So I generally sleep okay. But I think that would terrify me truly. Okay. Sam, I know you wanted to jump in. I mean, this is such a great interview with Vera. And I'm, I'm a huge fan of David and, and what she's doing and the ACLU. You go back to the beginning of, of their organization, the co-founder, Roger Baldwin, uh, you know, wanted to make America a better place, more liberal, you know, more respecting of human rights. And he says, look, my strategy is to talk a lot about the Constitution and wrap myself in the flag. He's, he actually says that to his followers um, and says, do, do that. Um, so when, when you hear, when you invoke the rule of law in your question and when, when Vera invokes the Constitution, you know, there's their parentheses behind those invocations at, as we want them to um, be interpreted. Um, 
Bill Barr is is interpreting it in a different way. And the bigger issue is, you know, the rule of law is a mixed bag in the Constitution, too. And, um, you know, all the bad things that Vera and I agree are the legacies of U.S. history were done pursuant to the law. Uh, You know, the Department of Homeland Security is a legal creation. So let's let's be careful, I would say, um, about treating the Constitution and the law as just unalloyed goods and pretending that our enemies are lawless and instead say the law is what we make it and we're in a struggle with our fellow citizens whom we have to convince to make it better rather than worse. One of the terms that you used frequently was dynamic, and it seems to me you understand this uh, process as ceaselessly dynamic. Not, we're not talking about eternal, unchanging documents or doctrines, but a constant, I guess you're saying, ultimately, political struggle. Absolutely. Uh, every moment in order to redefine, reinterpret. Right. So the um, law is... Living, con- the law, living principles and doctrines. Absolutely. The law is politics by other means. The Constitution is whatever we can argue the conservative majority now to agree with us about unless we reduce the power of that institution, which I think we should. And then maybe Vera would have a, a different you know, set of decision makers to convince uh, rather than always orienting ourselves to a now Trump stock judiciary, sadly. So Vera, please weigh in on Sam's um, reduction of law to politics. Um, and and his view of the Constitution. It's a mode of politics. I'm, I'm just kidding. I think I think they're very fair points. I think it is correct both to recognize the history, including the white supremacist history, behind the Constitution itself. I don't mean to suggest that it is the document that I would write or that I think that a just society would write today. It is the tool that we have, I think, that is the strongest tool to limit government abuses. And I would say that there's a difference between what statutes allow for and lawlessness in that regard and what is ultimately still a violation of the constitution. I do think it's a very important tool. And I think there are pieces of it that correctly reflect what human rights look like. That said, I don't think it's the only tool. And I think that it's not an inherently good tool. It's just a powerful one that we have to make change. So um, maybe as we move towards conclusion, um, I can ask you both um, what you think it is most valuable to learn from the past um, in terms of understanding where we are today and where we uh, uh, should go in terms of that idealized vision that uh, Roger Baldwin had in mind. So let me begin with you, Sam. You know, I you know I I, I totally agree with some people I've criticized that you know the past is unfortunately a fund of examples of things going wrong. Um, But it's also, you know, a set of examples about how, you know, injustice happens when, you know, things don't go dreadfully wrong. And there are actors who appear who are visionaries and and can convince people to uh, treat their fellow citizens and human beings better. And in the end, it's, you know, politics and movements that are inclusionary and and change our kind of imagination that that matter and the law just follows where they lead and you know their strategic choices uh, for good or ill are are what we should talk about and um, 
you know, I, I hope that Donald Trump's presidency convinces us that we can have more, you know, profits of a kind of different America and, uh, you know, uh, you know, change the whole dynamic as uh, to use your word or mine, uh, that have led us to this situation. Thanks. Vera, what, uh, what do you think it's valuable to learn from the past, um, in terms of understanding the present and navigating the future? Well, I certainly defer to you both as historians, but as a civilian, I would say that I find it, like I said, I find it comforting, even when we're talking about the past of Nazi Germany, I recognize this is an, it's absurd to say that I find that comforting, but I do find it comforting that humanity has dealt with problems before, and that this isn't the first time often that we're dealing with a particularly troubling situation. And I also think that it is very comforting to know that I think the course of human history is generally positive, that yes, terrible things have happened in the past, but I think as compared to them, all the problems that we have now are real, but I do think that we're in a better society. I'd rather be alive now than at any other time. We will, we will leave it at that. Um, an optimistic note uh, to end this conversation, this really rich and stimulating conversation. I'd like to thank you both, Sam and Vera, for joining us on Then and Now. It's been a real pleasure having you uh, on this episode. And thanks to our listeners out there. Let us know your thoughts about this and other episodes of Then and Now uh, by emailing us as, at luskincenter uh, at history.ucla.edu, L-U-S-K-I-N center at history.ucla.edu. And a final thanks to our executive producer, Maya Ferdman. Until next time, wishing you a healthy and safe day. Thank you for joining us this week on Then and Now. Then and Now is brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy, where we study change to make change. For more on our work, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at our handle, at Luskin History. Our show is produced by Maya Ferdman and David Myers, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening. <laughs>